Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 218 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I would like to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Tina Mathams, Courtney Ace and Peter Kurjak. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Cobweb. Cobweb was released in 2023. It has 6 out of 10 on IMDb and 58% on Rotten Tomatoes. Eight-year-old Peter is plagued by a mysterious, constant tap, tap from inside his bedroom wall, a tapping that his parents insist is all in his imagination. As Peter's fear intensifies, he believes that his parents could be hiding a terrible, dangerous secret and questions their trust. And for a child, what could be more frightening than that? As always with these film reviews, I'm going to start with the likes. Let's get into it. So the story centres around a little boy, right? And you guys, if you've been around for a while, you know how I feel about child actors in films. We let them away with way too much, okay? If a child actor isn't good, get rid of them. Get somebody else in. But this little boy was brilliant. He was really believable and he was a great hero throughout the story. I felt sorry for him. I wanted to protect him. I was impressed with him. So there's no sort of cringing at the poor child acting in the film which does make a difference when the whole story is centered around the perspective of a child you know and the film jumps straight into the freakiness okay there's no big crazy build-up straight away we have freaky things happening the little boy is scared he doesn't know what's going on and we want to know what's going on and I respect that I respect a story that is brave enough to just go straight into it and not to have you know swathes of expositionary build-up before anything scary even happens. No, no, we just dive straight into the tip-tapping on the wall. I often say as well when I'm watching these kind of films that bullying storylines are often so cringy because they're written by adults and they don't really reflect what bullying can be for younger people. But this one I thought was was written in a really good way and it was hard to watch. And I mean that in a good way, like it was done well, it was written well. I really felt for the little boy and I hated seeing him being bullied. I just hated it. And for the most part, this film sort of avoids that classic see the monster too early cliche that can often destroy an otherwise good film. I really feel very strongly that if you show the villain or the monster too early you run the risk of your watchers becoming bored it stops being freaky you're suddenly like oh well I've seen it now I don't really care anymore but this film maintained the air of mystery for a significant portion of the film which I thought 
can only be a good thing. We don't want to see the monster too soon, okay? Like with all good things, we don't want it to be over too soon. I will talk about the monster slash villain in the dislikes column, unfortunately. But for, you know, three quarters of the film, I was engaged. I was hooked. I wanted to know what was happening. I was here for it. And the parents also in this story are brilliant. They are brilliantly portrayed as like sociopathic control freaks who have done something awful and they have secrets to keep and they'll keep them at all costs. And I I enjoyed their portrayal. There was this really great thing and I don't know if it was like me reading too much into it or whether it was a definite choice, but often the parents' faces were in shadow and I quite liked that because it added to the terror, the fear, the anxiety around the parents and wondering, are these people really evil? Are they doing awful things to this little boy? Like, what is going on? And I really do think that fundamentally, this is a decent story. It was a good, engaging, fresh idea and I wanted to keep watching. I was trying to figure out what was going on. I was taking my guesses at things, you know. But that does bring me swiftly to the dislikes of this film. Um, firstly, I am tired of seeing horror movie villains crab walking or spider walking. Can we not think of anything else? Can we not Can we not do something else with horror villains? I'm tired of the crab walking. It was scary for a period of time, but I'm over it now. I don't care anymore. Even, I would even bring back the Michael Myers slow walk if it meant bringing something new to the horror genre. I'm sick of it. There are more effective ways to get around. If you're a horror movie monster or villain and you're listening to this, sometimes running is just as effective as crab walking, if not more effective. And on that note, when we get to the big reveal of the monster slash villain in this story, I was not impressed, okay? It was pretty rough CGI. Leave it to the imagination. The whole way through the film, we get a lot of tip-tapping, a lot of chitter-chatter, the voice, and then we get footsteps thumping around the house speedily. That's scary. All that shit is scary. The minute you show me the monster, I'm over it. I'm done. And especially if you don't, if you then overshow the monster or you don't show it well, God, or especially if they're fucking crab walking around the place. I'm sick of it. I also hated the voice of the monster. Like it was stupid. It wasn't scary. I was like, oh God, please shut up. If I was that little kid and I was faced with that monster slash villain, you best believe that I'm there going, oh, okay, shut your mouth. Do what you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to butcher me, if you're going to like, I don't know, cut my head off, whatever it is you think you're going to do, just do it and stop talking to me. I don't want to hear your voice. Stop crab walking. You're not impressing anybody. Your voice isn't scary. Keep it zipped. Thank you. And what annoyed me even more than all of this was how physically dark this film was. I could not for the life of me discern what was happening on the screen sometimes because it was so dark. Why do films do this? It drives me insane. Like, am I supposed to guess what is happening? Am I paying money to a service in order for me to have to fill in the blanks in my brain? Honestly, it took away from some of the best spooky bits and it drives me insane. If you are somebody from Hollywood, if you are somebody who is making films and you're listening to this, stop making them so dark. I want to see the actual action on the screen, okay? I'm tired of trying to squint to figure out what is going on. It's really, really frustrating. 
And it means that instead of trying to discern what's happening on the screen, I just get bored. And I'm like, well, I can't see what's happening. I can just hear grunting, running, people sounding frightened, but I can't see anything that's happening. So I'm not bothered. And as is often the case with these horror films, I felt like the last 15 minutes to send it into weird, unnecessary chaos that didn't really make much sense. It was very different in tone to the rest of the film. I thought the ending was a bit lacklustre. I was like, really? Really? However, all in all, it wasn't a bad film. It was pretty interesting and twisty-turny and engaging the last 15 minutes, like I said, descended into chaos. The monster reveal, villain reveal, wasn't great. I wasn't that I wasn't that enamoured by it. But it is worth a watch. I would say it's three stars for me. Now, look, I know I'm always giving films three stars. I think I might need to take a break from watching horror films for a while because I watch them and I'm like, oh, well, I've seen this a hundred times before. You know, this is nothing new. This is nothing exciting. I think I might be numb to horror films. So, yeah, sorry. Cue the laughter, but it's three stars for Cobweb. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Which brings us to our story this week. And our story this week is a UFO sort of strange, high strangeness story. And I know the UFO stories aren't for everybody. I get that. But there are people who are listening who very much enjoy a UFO story. And every so often, I like to put one in there. And today's story is all about the very famous and very strange case of the Warminster thing. Most of my research today comes from a book called History of a Mystery, 50 Years of the Warminster Thing by Steve Dewey and Kevin Goodman, which was actually a really good book. It is, they are, they, one of them is sort of a self-proclaimed believer. The other one is a self-proclaimed skeptic. And uh, as a result, I really do think they balance each other out in terms of what happened. So they, they give a very factual account of what happened in Warminster, who was involved, like what media was involved, etc. And it's a, it's, it's a book that's definitely worth purchasing if you want to know more about the Warminster thing. Warminster is a very unremarkable town. I know, a lot of our stories start like this, but it really is an unremarkable town. It has a population of around 18,000 people and is nestled in the southwest of England, south of the town of Bath and near to Stonehenge. It is in some ways a military town, being home to the Land Warfare Centre, and Salisbury Plains, to the north, is a place that is used for training and practising military manoeuvres, and is also used by the Navy and Air Force for the same purposes. But other than that, 
It really is unremarkable. I generally start the research for these stories with a read through the town's Wikipedia page for any interesting tidbits of information. And Warminster's page is completely normal, except for one little paragraph at the end. It is three sentences long and briefly describes a strange little tale that for some people put Warminster on the map. The sleepy little town that became the centre of a mystery that is still unsolved to this day. Imagine living in a perfectly normal town where nothing strange or unusual happens and now imagine you are a journalist in that town. You're going to report on small petty crimes, human interest stories, meetings of local groups, but ultimately nothing really exciting, nothing juicy. Imagine then it's Christmas 1964 and suddenly this small and sleepy town becomes the centre of international interest and for the most bizarre reasons. Arthur Shuttlewood was that journalist and is the primary reason why these stories became vaulted into the collective paranormal psyche. Our stories begin on Christmas Day in 1964 and this is how the Warminster Journal reported the first incident. Setting out for church at 6.30 on Christmas morning, a Bradley Road housewife heard a crackling noise from the direction of Bell Hill. At first she thought it was a lorry spreading grit on the hill, but the noise grew louder, came over her head and passed across Ludlow Close. She will not let me use her name as she is afraid of being laughed at. The noise sounded like branches being pulled over gravel and there was a faint hum. It was quite loud but not above talking level. The sky was dark but brilliantly starlit and she could see nothing above her. Explanations have included static electricity caused by wet power lines, natural static electricity caused by weather conditions, a satellite and Father Christmas taking off. This shy lady would be glad to hear from anybody else who heard the noise or who could give some explanation. Her knees were knocking all the way to the church. There is a certain twee and tongue-in-cheek style to this piece that is reminiscent of small-town journalism all over the UK. But what is interesting about this little news story is that our unnamed housewife was not the only Warminster resident who had had strange experiences on Christmas of 1964. Roger Rump was the local postmaster in the town and he was also plagued by strange sounds at the same time as Mrs Anonymous. He was at home, in bed, when he heard a clattering on the roof and not just a clattering, he described it as sounding like the roof tiles were individually being ripped off the roof by some tremendous force and then there was the sound as though they were being slammed back into place and this was all accompanied by a humming sound. The disturbance lasted no more than a minute but Roger was utterly perplexed by what he had heard and could not, for the life of him, figure out what was the cause of the sound. He had never heard anything like that before. About four miles away, at Nook Camp, 30 soldiers reported that they too heard a clattering sound from the sky. A sergeant reported that it sounded like the chimney stack had been ripped off 
and the pieces thrown across the whole camp. But upon investigation, there was nothing awry. Perhaps interestingly, the soldiers reported that whatever they had heard did not sound like any aircraft that they were familiar with. Mildred Head was awoken at 1.45 on Christmas morning to the sound of what she initially thought was branches and twigs being dragged across the roof, which was quickly followed by what she described as the sound of heavy hailstones battering against the roof. And there was the humming, that got louder and then faded away into nothing. Suddenly it was clear that it wasn't just Mrs Anonymous's story, but it was the whole community's story. People from all walks of life had experienced this disturbance and no one could explain what had happened. And the sounds didn't end in 1964. The experiences continued into 1965. In March 1965, a couple reported that they had experienced an onslaught of noise over the roof of their house. The familiar sounds of banging and rattling coupled with the humming and this time the family cat was violently ill after the noise had died away. The cat seemed to have been frightened by the sounds and vomited repeatedly after the sounds had disappeared. Perhaps this was just an eerie coincidence. Except people were reaching out to journalist Arthur Shuttlewood and of those who had animals, reported that the animals seemed terrified by the sound and some reacted physically to the sound, shaking or being ill. In February 1965, a man who lived on the southern side of the town reported that a flock of birds had literally been killed mid-flight. The man, a David C. Holton, had come across the dead flock and was so shocked that he decided to examine the birds and could see no physical reason for the death of the birds and surmised that could it have possibly been the sound that killed them. If it was possible that animals could be physically affected by the sound from afar, was it also possible that these birds had experienced the source of the sound in the air and at much closer range, and therefore had dropped dead? On the 25th of March 1965, Ted and Gwen Davis, who lived in a village two miles south of Warminster, reported that while they were eating their breakfast, the house was suddenly engulfed with a metallic grinding sound that made the rafters shake. When they went outside, the noise had stopped and the sky was blue and clear. And the experiences continued. People from all around the town reported metallic grinding sounds coming from the sky, whistling sounds that developed into a loud buzz, the sound of stones or large hailstones rattling on the roofs of houses. One woman reported that she and her family had heard the bumping sounds on the roof and then a light illuminated her bedroom from outside and it was so bright that it was like daylight for a few seconds and then nothing. And then things changed. The auditory phenomena changed and people began to see things in the sky. Most notably, people began to see a huge cigar-shaped metal object in the sky. The wife of the local vicar, Patricia Phillips, and her son allegedly watched one of these cigar-shaped objects in the sky for 25 minutes. 
she was absolutely certain that this object did not move in the period of time that she watched it for, saying that it eventually turned on its axis and disappeared. At this point, the entire Phillips family and a visitor watched this object in the sky. More objects in the sky were seen by multiple other witnesses in different locations, including 17 people who were swimming in Shearwater Lake. But on the 17th of August, 1965, an explosion in the sky rocked houses in the Borham Field housing estate. There were a series of booms and jolts that shook houses. A huge orange ball of flame was seen in the sky and two windows in a house below were shattered with the force of the explosion. None of the neighbouring military facilities claimed any responsibility for the events. And with that, Warminster became an international sensation. It was silly season in the UK media, that period of time in the summer months when Parliament goes on their summer break and with the lack of politics comes a deluge of alternative news stories. And the Warminster thing was the perfect column filler. And the experiences in Warminster didn't end because the next big event was the photograph. The photograph became known as the Faulkner Photograph. On the 29th of August 1965, Gordon Faulkner left his house carrying his camera. He was en route to his sister's house when he noticed something in the air. A disc that was moving quickly. He knew that it was moving too fast for him to be able to take a picture easily. So he pointed the camera in the vicinity of his suspected trajectory of the craft and snapped. He didn't think that he had caught anything. But when the picture was developed, by some miracle of quick thinking, he had captured the craft on camera. As always, the Faulkner photograph will be posted on Instagram, Facebook and Patreon. But if you don't use any of those platforms, you can simply Google Faulkner photograph Warminster. The photograph is grainy, as you can imagine. And it is a photograph of something that is far off in the sky over Warminster. A tiny speck. And when the section is enlarged, it is even more grainy, of course, but it is an image of a disc-shaped object, high in the sky, with a dome on top. Arthur Shuttlewood had been the person at the centre of this case. He was the person who received the reports of the sightings, and he was the point of contact for the media. But he remained sceptical about what was actually happening in Warminster. He believed that the people who had witnessed or heard something had indeed witnessed or heard something, but he was sceptical as to what exactly that might be. Until he himself came face to face with the Warminster thing. At 3.42pm on the 28th of September 1965, Shuttlewood was at home and was going upstairs when something out the window caught his eye. It was a cigar-shaped object in the sky. When speaking to a BBC documentary that aired in 1966, Shuttlewood said, Now, had I normally been walking underneath that, I'm sure I would have assumed the proportions of nothing more than a dense white cloud. But from the angle of vision I had from the top of the house, I could see a peculiar hump, a yellow or burnished amber protrusion from the top. And I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. It was nine months since this thing started. 
I honestly don't think that I'd been conditioned to all that extent. Although I've lived within the vortex or the centre of this mystery, and let's face it, it is a mystery. But I wasn't convinced, despite the high calibre of witnesses, that this thing existed. But I saw this with my own eyes. Shuttlewood grabbed his camera in order to get evidence of this aerial phenomenon as it glided silently upwards into the sky. But as he raised his camera to take the picture, the camera began to jump around in his hands. He got pins and needles in his arm and in his eye. And allegedly his eye watered for two months afterwards. He believed that whatever was in that craft knew that he was trying to snap a picture and had somehow been able to control his camera. Of course, when the film was developed, the camera had captured nothing beyond a few feet in front of him, and the part of the picture that should have contained the image of the craft was damaged beyond all recognition. The sightings continued well into the winter of 1965. Now a year after the initial sightings were reported, Cigar-shaped objects in the sky, strange discs with golden domes, lights in the sky, the sounds of rocks falling on the roofs of individual houses, a strange droning or humming sound in the sky, and houses shaking and vibrating with the sounds. Into 1966, the sightings continued. In June, a Mrs. Marson reported that one night at home, she had heard a deafening humming which caused her house to shake and then a bright light illuminated the house like it was daylight and then disappeared. Lights in the sky continued to be reported. In 1967, reports of UFOs occurred across the country, including one of the most well-known sightings of the Devon Flying Cross. In a 2016 article about the incident, Nick Redfern wrote, October 24th, was the date upon which one of the most widely reported cases occurred. The witnesses were Roger Wiley and Clifford Waycott, both police constables. It was shortly after 4am when the pair was approaching Brandis Corner in the county of Devon that something incredible appeared in the skies. 29-year-old Constable Wiley said of the object, It looked like a star-spangled cross, radiating points of light from all angles. It first appeared to the left of us and then went into an arc and dipped down and we thought it had landed. PC Waycott provided the following words. When we got out to look, it started moving again. It was not an airplane or a helicopter, but it was as large as a conventional aircraft. And PC Wiley wasn't finished. It seemed to be watching us and wouldn't let us catch up. It was at various altitudes all the time, but mostly just above the trees. It had terrific acceleration. It seemed to know we were chasing it. Such was their determination to keep the UFO in view. Wiley floored the accelerator, reaching speeds of around 90 miles an hour. What appears to have been the same thing was also seen by Stella Crocker of Brandis Corner. She caught sight of what she called a starry cross, hovering at barely 400 feet and at roughly the same time as Wiley and Waycott. Moving across to the east coast of England, 
Ursula Domit was witness to a huge four-pointed cross heading out to sea. The time was shortly after the experience of Stella Crocker. Then, on the night of October the 25th, retired Royal Air Force Wing Commander Eric Cox saw what he termed seven brilliant lights as he drove along a stretch of Hampshire Road. Cox was certain that they were three miles away at treetop height, flying in a V formation. After about three minutes, they broke off and three went away. They just faded. Then the other four formed a perfect formation, just like a plus sign or a cross. They were certainly under some sort of control because the formation was so tight. Across the following two days, reports surfaced from Somerset, Devon, Gloucester, Oxfordshire and Derbyshire. Indeed, in Glossop, Derbyshire alone, no less than six police constables witnessed a UFO hanging in the sky in a pendulum-like fashion. For the next few days, the UK was gripped by UFO mania. Even the Ministry of Defence took a proactive stance. Records released under the terms of the US Freedom of Information Act state that on the 12th of December 1967, the British Embassy was directed by London to further investigate the subject with a view to cooperating with the Russians in observing teams for UFOs. Late 1967 was, without doubt, quite a time when it came to the issue of UFOs in the UK. The sightings in Warminster decreased steadily into the 70s, although interest remained for a sustained period of time. Eventually, the story disappeared into the annals of time, but sightings have continued to this day. And I would love to tell you, dear listeners, that I have a neat a neat solution to this puzzle. I have the answer to this story, so we can wrap it all up in a nice little Christmas bow. But no, I do not. I have some theories for you. I have some further information that may help to shape your ideas around this story. But no, I do not have an answer. So let's look at further information slash theory number one, which is Arthur Shuttlewood. Now, Arthur Shuttlewood passed away in the 90s and he was widely kind of respected and recognised for the huge amount of work he did in terms of uh, UFO discussions and education in the UK. So he was the reporter and the point of contact to everyone. The story starts with Arthur Shuttlewood and it continues with Arthur Shuttlewood. So his wages at the time would have been pretty low, like quite low. And apparently at the time, when you sold a story to a national newspaper, so the national newspapers would have had regional points of contact. And Arthur Shuttlewood was a regional point of contact for national newspapers. And when you sold a story you would make a certain amount of money per word or per, or per line. So it might be like two pence per word or 10 pence per line. So it was in Arthur's best interest to sell these stories to newspapers. And actually, apparently, it's estimated that he doubled his wages by doing this. So he made a wage reporting on local news and then he made the same wage selling stories to national newspapers. I am not judging him for that you make that money Arthur but what I'm saying is 
it was definitely in his best interest to keep these stories alive. He also researched the Warminster thing for years and years after the money and the interest had stopped. There you go. And while he was deemed to have a very creative writing style, it is said that he didn't seem to exaggerate or fabricate any of the stories that were presented as from local people. So it's not like he went and he was like, oh, I'll just say this is from somebody anonymous and I'll make up the story. No, it seems that the stories were real. They happened to real people and these real people did approach him to tell them, tell him these stories. And also it seems that these stories weren't exaggerated. That is what happened. So while I think, yes, it was in Arthur's best interest to sell these stories to national newspapers, I don't think that was his sole reason for keeping this story going. I think, yeah, he probably would have been like, shit, this is making me money. Brilliant. There's a bit of an interest in it. It's silly season. Nothing's happening in the Houses of Parliament. Therefore, these weird stories are going to get the exposure that they ordinarily wouldn't get. So I'm going to capitalise on that. Can you blame him for doing that? Absolutely not. It is also important to note that in uh, in one of his books, his first book, Arthur <laughs> Arthur writes about these phone calls that he got from aliens, right? And I, to be clear, he says that he recognises these phone calls are more than likely a hoax. But he thought, look, we're, we're including it anyway because it's <laughs> because it is part of the story. And he would get these phone calls from the uh, phone box in the estate where the big explosion happened, the Borum estate, right? From the phone box, pretending or pretending. Now, listen, I'm saying pretending. That obviously means that I've, I have my bias already. But these phone calls would say, listen, hi, we're the aliens. Uh, we're ringing you from a phone box so that you can't get our location. But we, we've got some messages for you. And Arthur, because he's a good journalist, was like, sure, tell me these messages, oh, alien people. One of the messages claimed to be, one of the alien contactors claimed to be the queen of this alien race. And as was pointed out in the book that I did the research from, it seems very short-sighted that the alien race would bring their queen to Earth if they were doing some sort of recce or, you know, going there to start a war. It seems likely she'd be left at home. But... We don't know anything about these aliens. Let them do what they want to do. If they want to ship their queen around, good for them. In Star Wars, Princess Leia spends a lot of time bopping around on ships, as does Queen Amidala. Listen, I I don't know, okay? But anyway, these aliens that were ringing him from this phone box would give him a lot of messages, a lot about ecology and about how humans needed to be looking after the earth, how the waters and the air were being polluted. That's not a bad message. We can all get on board with that, even from a 2023 perspective. Also, which I thought was slightly problematic, a lot of very Christianity-centric ideas about humanity. A lot of talk about morals, sin, anti-abortion. The reason for mental health issues and stuff was that people are sinning. You know, things that I sort of thought, that seems very akin to Christianity. And I'm not... I'm not attributing those things to Christianity and saying all Christians believe those things. But these aliens talked about the second coming of Christ. They talked about Jesus a lot. And look, if it was me, if I was an alien coming from another planet, I probably wouldn't be ringing a local journalist 
from a local phone box to give him all these great messages I'd probably go straight straight to the top you know I'd be like listen we need to speak to somebody who can actually implement change not a small town journalist in a small town there was also a story that I just didn't include. I mean, there was a couple of stories that I didn't include. One was this report of like, of strange people seen around Warminster. And the report was very clearly, it was a man who was dressed inappropriately for the weather, who was walking as though he was drunk in the town of Warminster, who was arrested and then wouldn't tell the police who he was. I I don't think that's anything to do with aliens. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't think it is. I think... If strange things are happening in a place and it's widely reported in the media, you are going to attract new people to the town. Secondly, there was a man and a woman who allegedly, even saying this is making me laugh, who allegedly witnessed one of these crafts. They got a message to say, you need to be on this hill at this time. They went and three minutes after the allotted time, a craft appeared in the sky and it landed. And they went to see what it was. And it was actually a very small disc-shaped spacecraft with a golden dome on the top, as was seen in the picture. And a tiny ladder came out of the spacecraft and tiny creatures emerged from the spacecraft who then grew to normal human size. And then they shrunk back down again with the man and brought him away in their spacecraft. And again... Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm showing my bias. Maybe I'm being judgmental, not including that story in the narrative. But it didn't feel like it really fit with the rest of the narrative of this particular story. So while I think that Arthur was out to make some money, good for him, make that money, Arthur. I actually don't think that he fabricated these stories. I think that he saw an opportunity, saw a weird story that was going to gain attention nationally. And he went for it and fair play to him. Good for you, Arthur. The other person of interest in this story is somebody that you may not remember. David C. Holton was the person who reported the dead flock of birds. It was pigeons specifically. And later, I think in the early 2000s, he wrote a letter and said that he had played a part in the perpetration of mass hypnosis. So he was somebody who was interested in alternate medicine, all that kind of jazz. And he was interested in hypnosis. And while he was reading about hypnosis, he became interested in mass hypnosis, like things like subliminal messaging, for example, which I understand isn't necessarily the same as hypnosis, but it's, you know, it's it, we're, in, we're in the same vein. And he said that the sounds that were reported, so these humming sounds, the sounds of, you know, branches over roofs, whatever it was, that that gave him the perfect opportunity to try out mass hypnosis on everybody. So he said that he made up the pigeons story, the finding the dead flock of pigeons, in order to encourage the perception that something strange was going on in Warminster. He then was the person who suggested spaceships, which is true. He seems to be the first person in this whole story to suggest UFOs or spaceships. Apparently, he said regularly to Arthur Shuttlewood when they were corresponding that things like, it won't be long until lights are seen in the sky. It won't be long until loads of spaceships are witnessed. It won't be long until they're landing if they haven't landed already. And he said that he did that in order to 
plant these subliminal ideas into people's minds and then it was evidence enough for him when people started saying oh I saw lights in the sky and whatever he drops out of the narrative relatively early on in that kind of early summer of that silly season of 1965 he drops out of the narrative kind of because he he said he was like my work here is done he he kind of you know rubbed his hands together and was like well that's done I'm off see you later and there's something about that take on the story that sort of rubs me up the wrong way yes I understand how you could do it and I understand that the power of perception is incredibly strong and subliminal messaging is incredibly powerful etc etc right I understand that intellectually I understand that but really all these years later like 50 years later to come out and go yeah actually I did that that was me I I did that and while I think that actually probably a significant amount of the phenomena in this case might be misidentification I don't think that all of the phenomena that was experienced by the people of Warminster can be put down to this one man particularly when we started with the sounds that's what we started with and he apparently capitalized on those sounds and I will come back to the sounds in a few minutes because I think that's really interesting there also is a section in the book where they talk about a UFO investigation group that went to Warminster and purposefully hoaxed some things in order to see what people would say about the things they'd witnessed and they believed that much of the phenomena that happened in Warminster was misinterpreted, misunderstood, misidentified and they believed that some of the stuff that happened was definitely caused by them. So they would do things like send a kite up into the sky with lights on a delayed timer and those then would light up when they were in the sky and they would photograph them and see what they looked like etc etc and they believe that some people may have witnessed some of the experiments that they were doing and I, I I guess it sort of sounds like they were purposefully going there to hoax things that's not I think what their intention was their intention was to go and do some experiments and see like can we figure out like misidentification can we figure out that you know that light in the sky that was witnessed by those people was actually caused by car headlights coming over a hill some of the stuff they believed that they were able to figure out was you know misinterpretation misidentification and then some of the stuff they believed was possibly actually directly caused by them but all that aside there's a part of this story that still cannot be accounted for and that is the humming sound, the sound of hailstones or branches being dragged across roofs, however, however people described it differently, and whole houses being illuminated in the middle of the night for it to look like daylight. And those sounds, like animals reacting really violently to those sounds. Say if we dismiss the flock of birds dying mid-flight, we dismiss that. Other animals were reported to have acted strangely like dogs being really frightened cats being really frightened when the sound started there was obviously that report of the cat vomiting all over the house after the sounds had stopped something was making those sounds and that was where the original story started this woman walking to mass hearing these sounds over her head not knowing what these sounds were and being frightened by it and that's the part of this story that i think is far more interesting or engaging than anything else what was causing these sounds that caused houses to shake because you would imagine that if it was aircraft or whatever people 
people were rushing to the windows to see what was going on outside and what was making those sounds and they weren't seeing anything. There was nothing in the sky. You know, this sound of hailstones falling on their houses or rocks falling on their roofs or whatever. There was no explanation to what those sounds were. So if you start on the sounds on the roof, this sound of hailstones or stones pelting the roof or, you know, branches being dragged across the roof. I believe that if those sounds were caused by something natural, so stones pelting on the roof or hailstones or whatever it was, that there would be a visible explanation after the occupants of the households went out to check so there would be stones around the place there would be damage to the roof that whatever there would be some sort of evidence if it was natural in my opinion but it really isn't the first time that something like this has happened in terms of those sounds on the roof so i did a story on patreon a while ago where this uh play this house in the uk this group of houses in the uk were pummeled by stones every night Nobody could figure out what was happening. The police got involved. There was a full-scale investigation. They eventually said, well, somebody must have made some sort of catapult in order to be able to fling all these stones from a distance, etc., etc. But they never could. They never caught anybody. They never figured out how they did it. They never understood how they did it. But with that particular case, there was evidence of these stones. And sometimes they would be warm when they were picked up or hot. And they did damage, you know, they damaged the roofs, they damaged windows, they smashed things to bits. Now, unless I missed a bit of this story or unless I just didn't find evidence of it in my research, there doesn't seem to have been any evidence of things physically being thrown at the houses that would account for these noises. And equally, there have been cases all over the world where people have been assailed by mysterious humming sounds like some people have genuinely had their lives ruined in villages and towns all over the world because of mysterious humming sounds that nobody can find the answer to or nobody can find an explanation for currently in oma in ireland there is a humming noise that people can't account for and it has been investigated it has happened in durham it's happened in various places in australia all over europe in north america and there is obviously of course the idea that once you hear something and you start focusing on it you can't not hear it and it becomes anxiety inducing and you and you you can't focus on anything else however in the incidents in Warminster, this humming sound seems to have come and gone in the space of a minute, like something passing overhead or like something descending onto the roof of a house and disappearing again. It wasn't a constant thing. There are also lots of people who talk about ley lines in relation to the Warminster thing. Warminster is close to Stonehenge and people always say that ley lines kind of end up at Stonehenge and Warminster is on one of those ley lines, blah, blah. I still don't really understand what ley lines were. For the longest time, I thought it was something scientific. It is not. It is something I do not understand. I don't understand who decided to draw these ley lines, who decided where they went and why they ended at Stonehenge. I don't know. I need to look into it. But I don't think this is ley line related personally. There is also the fact that people in the Boreham estate literally saw an explosion in the sky It was so powerful that it shattered windows in one of the houses below. Something happened in the sky over Warminster. Whatever that something was is the thing that is up for debate. 
I believe that these people experienced something. Do I believe it was aliens? Probably not. And I think that that hum, that sound, that rattled houses, whatever that that woman experienced when she was walking to church, I think it was probably something something to do with the military, something to do with the army, something to do with the military that perhaps, you know, ordinary soldiers weren't aware of. A testing of weapons, a testing of new material, a testing of new aircraft, whatever it was. That's what I think it maybe was initially and then I think people got wrapped up in the story and whipped up into the story potentially that's my thought now look I could be wrong and I'm perfectly willing to admit when I'm wrong maybe I just don't want to even entertain the prospect of aliens thank you so much for listening to today's story if you would like to send in your story you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com you can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com and if you are desperate for some extra content you can subscribe to the patreon that is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for two dollars a month or five dollars a month you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free and on that note i shall see you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 